Well, welcome everyone um, to our public lecture this evening. We, um, I'm going to make a few announcements and then we'll get started. Um, my name is Kenneth Benoit. I'm a professor and head of the Methodology Institute um, who's sponsoring the, the talk this evening. And I thank Sally Stairs here sitting in the front row for having uh, also organized this event. Um, I welcome you to the, uh, the public lecture this evening from Dr. Chris Smith, sitting next to me here, also known as the Naked Scientist. He's going to make a presentation for us um, about half an hour long, and then we'll have the opportunity to ask questions. Um, we will have a ro roving microphone, and you'll have a chance to uh, ask questions once um, you receive the microphone, hopefully. Um, I can also tell you that we are recording this event, so we hope to make the podcast available soon after uh, the event um, has finished. So it's my pleasure now to welcome Dr. Chris Smith, also known as the Naked Scientist. He's a medical doctor and a scientist, a clinical lecturer in bio virology at Cambridge University. Uh, he was born in Essex. He went to medical school in London and Cambridge. He did an MD, PhD, and halfway through his studies, through his PhD studies, he started making the radio program. He created this program known as the Naked Scientist, which, if you're not familiar with it, it's a radio show that now reaches uh, millions of people every week. It's created by a group of individuals who work in the pathology department at Cambridge University. It has a staff of about five people, and, and it's supported by a combination of grants and, and, and commercial support. The radio broadcast is uh, broadcast on BBC. It's also broadcast in Australia and in South Africa. And if you haven't tuned in, uh, I'm sure Chris will tell you when it uh, comes in. Um, the idea is to strip down science and to make it more interesting for people who, like myself, wouldn't uh, know uh, anything about natural science or how these things work. And his new book, The Naked Scientist, I was just leafing through it, it's full of fascinating um, uh, lessons from popular science or popularizations of, of hard science and interesting things about fish laying eggs and whatnot. Um, the science of everyday life made bare and laid bare. And there are books available outside if you are interested in purchasing one. Thank you very much. And uh, from now on, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kenneth. Uh, thank you, LSE, for having me, and also thank you, Little Brown, for publishing my book, which I'm here to mercilessly plug. So anyway, I'm really sorry if anyone's now hopelessly disappointed because you're expecting a display of nudity, and I've turned up wearing a suit. Um, I can probably reassure you you'd be a hell of a lot more disappointed if I did strip off. Um, well, let's wait, lay one thing, thing to rest, though, because uh, I know the thing that's going through all your minds is, well, do these guys really do this naked? And uh, the answer is, on occasion. Um, in fact, when I first published this, and this is a sort of lesson to me, um, never publish anything on the internet uh, that you're not prepared to have changed. Uh, I published this picture, and within nanoseconds it was doctored. And someone drew this dotted line down here from Helen's line of gaze, going down in this direction. And then they drew a big ring around these two fingers and had this speech bubble going, is she trying to tell us something, Chris? And I said, well, obviously she's very clued up on the use of a logarithmic scale, isn't she? Um, so what is the Naked Scientist? Well, 
We sit in this studio on a Sunday night for an hour, doing a live programme. And the first thing we do is to look at what's hot in the world of science news. So it's a conversational analysis of the week's breaking news stories. And rather than just tell you the sorts of things we cover, I thought I'd just give you some examples of some of the stories that are going to come out this week so that you can gain an impression of how we do our programme. Uh, and I was actually having a conversation this morning with a company based in Cambridge who are a technology company who have made some sensors that you can put into clothing. And they've teamed up with Lacoste, the clothing manufacturer, to make diagnostic t-shirts so that you put this t-shirt on and it tells you the underlying problem. And they've got a prototype they sent me a picture of. They're not ready to unveil it quite yet because they've one or two teething problems. So um, here's the t-shirt in action. On the back it says, no shit, Sherlock. Um, the other thing that I discovered from my friends in Australia, in the South Pacific, is that uh, they've discovered the world's biggest seahorse this week. I've got a sneak preview of that too. Here it is. And uh, I was talking to some people at uh, Nokia who have teamed up with a Russian group of inventors who are working for the Russian government to develop a new camera phone for the Russian market. Unfortunately, the Russians spent all the money on uh, invading former Soviet bloc countries, so the technology is a bit behind. Um, but they have come up with a deluxe version to appease their shareholders, and this is the picture of it. It's got a vibrating alert function, as you can see on the side there. So we look at the science news of the week, and we analyse it in a fun and conversational way. Humour is an essential element of making science interesting and keeping people's attention. The other major selling point of the show is that we interview top scientists about their work. And we've had some pretty famous ones on the show over the years. And the idea is that we talk to people first and do a rock-solid, really high-quality interview with them. And then we open the phone lines and say to people, would you like to ask this person any questions? And then people from the general public start phoning, texting, emailing in with their own questions. So we have a conversation with, with the scientists about their science. But the one thing about radio is that it's an amazing medium for communicating ideas very effectively. But there are some aspects of it that are much harder to communicate because it's a non-visual medium. So how do you give a visual element to a non-visual medium? Well, we've thought about this for a while and realised the best way of doing this is you get people to do some experiments at home alongside your broadcast. So now we have an element called kitchen science where we say to people, go and get the following things out of the cupboard, do the following things with them, and then phone in with your results. And sometimes we also go a bit beyond the kitchen and start testing some really quite wild and wacky theories. Who's heard of the claim that a chocolate teapot is useless? Yeah, a few people have heard that. Yeah. Have you seen any empirical evidence that a chocolate teapot is useless? Have you seen any empirical evidence that a chocolate teapot is, is useless? Sorry, I didn't know you couldn't hear me. Have, has anyone seen any evidence that a chocolate teapot doesn't work? I'm being turned on, apparently. <laughs> it's good for a naked scientist. Well, I looked for some empirical evidence that a chocolate teapot doesn't work, and I couldn't find any. So we decided to test this claim, and we made one. Um, you have to ask the question, well, how do you decide how big to make your chocolate teapot? Well, actually, this is one and a half kilos of Bourneville dark chocolate. Um, I went to the local corner store and emptied their entire stock of chocolate to make this. And when I bought all this chocolate, emptying the shelf, the store owner said, there's a chemist next door if you need some insulin after that lot. Um, but what we did was to melt the chocolate and pour it into Perspex tubes, let it set, 
and we poured it to different thicknesses in the bottoms of the tubes and then put in boiling hot water to see what thickness of chocolate was the threshold amount needed to hold water, in other words, not to melt through. And we discovered that if you have a, a layer of chocolate at least a centimetre thick, then it won't melt through with boiling water. So we used these two Perspex bowls, which are up here, and sandwiched the two together and made our chocolate teapot by filling the gap between them with molten chocolate and letting it set. And we got a chocolate teapot that did actually make quite a good cup of tea. Um, and the lid did melt in, but that kind of added to the flavour. It was the sort of mocker equivalent of a cup of tea. And uh, it was evidently quite drinkable, as uh, Ben and Dave, who work with me, will testify. And um, because we did this, we then got picked up internationally as uh, an empirical source of evidence that chocolate teapots are not, in fact, useless. In fact, it spawned a Wikipedia page. Um, this is the Wikipedia reference on teapots, and under teapots is a strand called the chocolate teapot, uh, with a definition of the fact that a chocolate teapot is viewed to be an analogy for a useless item. Uh, and then it says, in experimental research in 2001, they failed to successfully use a chocolate teapot that had been made. But later research by the Naked Scientist shows that such a teapot can be used to make tea, provided the walls are made at least a centimetre thick. So there you go. We're now a source of, dis of debunking the myth that a chocolate teapot is useless. So use that, use that analogy with care. Now, has anyone ever tried this? This is an oven shelf with two bits of string, and he's got the string wrapped around his index fingers and plugged into his ears. Anyone tried this? Not surprisingly, because it looks like the guy, you think, is on his way to a mental institution. Uh, this is another one of our kitchen science experiments. And if I were to hit the oven shelf, which is what this gentleman here is going to do with this marker pen, what would happen? You'd hear a ringing noise, wouldn't you? Agree? And what would be the flavour of that ringing noise? What would it sound like? High pitch, low pitch? High pitch ringing noise, yeah? But is that the only sound that's coming out of the oven shelf? The answer is no, because actually the oven shelf is producing all kinds of different frequencies. It's just that you can't hear them. And the reason for this is when you hit the oven shelf and it vibrates and resonates, air is like a fluid. And if you make the air move very fast, this is like you slapping water in your bath. When you make the water move very fast, it becomes stiff and it piles up and you make lots of waves. But if you waft your hand gently backwards and forwards through the bath water, then the water can flow easily around your fingers and you don't get any waves. And it's exactly the same with the air. So the low frequencies don't make it very well into the air. But if you put two bits of string on each corner, one on each corner, and put them up to your fingers, the low frequencies will transmit up the stiff string really well. And then they go along your finger and you get what's called bone conduction, which carries the vibrations directly into your cochlea, the thing that turns sound waves into brain waves. And actually, if you try this, it sounds like Big Ben going off in your head. And we put this out on the radio and said to people, go and do the following things. We thought kids would do this. Actually, some 80-year-old kids clearly enjoy doing this. We got phone calls from all across the country, people saying, um, yeah, I'm doing this, it sounds like Big Ben is going off in my head. And then this, this um, one old lady phoned up and she says, yeah, it sounds like I've got a massive bell ringing in my head. And in the background you could hear this bloke saying, get off the phone, love, I can't hit this thing myself. <laughs> and since we published that, we've now, we now get pictures, usually of pissed students at parties from all over the world, with all kinds of kitchen equipment strapped to their heads. We've had toasters, woks, 
But it works, works really well. So it's a really nice way of actually talking about some quite high-level physics in a way that you don't forget, because I guarantee you probably won't ever forget that now, and, you'll, and you won't forget why it works either. So it's pegging some quite high-level science onto something extremely simple and safe that people can do at home, and it's damn good fun. Now, one other experiment we did was uh, a little bit more dangerous, so we didn't encourage people to do this at home, but we wanted to know how fat would you have to be to stop a bullet with your beer gut. Any suggestions? Call out some numbers. How fat, how much fat out front do you think you'd want to, to, to fend off a bullet with your beer belly? A couple of centimetres, a couple of inches? 12 inches of fat, That's a prodigious amount of flab, isn't it? Yeah, so a foot of flab, we've got any, any advance on a foot of flab? Well, how would you find out? You do the experiment, right? So we did. And it turns out that uh, gelatin is a very good analogue of body fat. So we made this Perspex tube, which we filled with gelatin and let it set. And then we used this helium-powered rifle to fire projectiles at 1,000 miles an hour into it whilst taking pictures at 3,000 frames a second to, to track the trajectory of the bullet through the gelatin to see how much it slowed down in 30 centimetres of fat analogue, so we could extrapolate that to a beer gut. So I've actually got some of the recording. I'll show you the footage. I'll just um, go to this one first. So what you're going to see, over this side is where the bullet will come in. This is the tube of gelatin, and you'll see the pictures coming in at several thousand frames a second. So here we go. If we hit the play, you'll see a shock wave appear ahead of the bullet. Here it comes. The gelatin compresses, bullet goes in, decelerating as it goes through, we can plot that trajectory and work out that you would need 76 centimetres of fat out front to fend off a bullet going 1,000 miles an hour. That's roughly a Kalashnikov shell. So if you could achieve 76 centimetres of flab, then you would have your own personal inbuilt body armour system. Um, actually, if you could achieve 76 centimetres of fat out front, you'd be dead of some other kind of cholesterol poisoning long before a bullet got anywhere near you. But um, 76 centimetres, that, that would give even, even some gut-busting Australians a run for their money, wouldn't it? Or maybe a waddle would be a better way of putting it. So, that's the, the flab. Um, one other thing to bear in mind is, at the moment, it's flu season. Anyone got the flu? Who's got a cold in here? Who sneezed today? Everyone should have their hand up, because pretty much everybody is infected with something all the time. As a virologist, we know that. Actually, you're carrying something and excreting something continuously. But when you sneeze, how fast does a sneeze go? Give me some suggestions. 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour. You are an enthusiastic lot, I have to say. <laughs> okay. Well, how would you find out? Do the experiment. That's the answer. So we did. And one of the occupational hazards of working with me on the Naked Scientist is you have to do crazy, wacky things like breathe in pepper, which is what we got Dave, who works with me, to do. You saw him making tea in a chocolate teapot. Now he's going to sneeze for you. Um, we stood him in front of this, this brick wall, which is a large black brick wall in Cambridge, and we glued this piece of paper to the wall. This is A4 paper, so it's our distance marker. It's 30 centimetres across. And we took pictures at the rate of 300 frames a second of Dave sneezing. So here he goes. Look away now if you are likely to be repulsed or of a fairly weakened disposition. Here he goes. 
Okay, if you missed it, he'll do it again, don't worry. And here's one for effect from slightly further away. I love that big macro snot that goes sort of flying across the top. So, we can now take the footage of Dave sneezing on Pepper and we can analyse it frame by frame. So if I go to here, you've heard of freeze framing photography, this is sneeze framing. Right? So we, we know that it's taken about three frames for the macro snot, the particles we can see, to do about 30 centimetres. So that's the size of the piece of A4. So we can actually do the calculations. So the piece of A4, about 30 centimetres, 298 millimetres. Um, the video is going at 300 frames a second. So if we look at those individual frames, we know we can work out, therefore, the speed of the sneeze. It takes about three frames to go across the piece of paper. So three frames at 300, uh, 300 frames a second is three times one three hundredth, which is one one hundredth of a second. So the sneeze is doing 30 centimetres, the size of the piece of A4, in one hundredth of a second. So that translates into about 30 metres a second, or 108 kilometres per hour. Now that is the macro snot, the big stuff that you can see. There will inevitably be smaller particles that you can't, and you know, that includes viruses. So basically if someone sneezes and they're expelling viruses, and bear in mind that a flu virus is about one ten thousandth of a millimetre across, smaller than the particles of smoke off the end of a cigarette. That will be on the other side of a room like this in, in under a second, potentially. So we're all going to get it, probably. So The government said catch it, bin it, kill it. Probably better advice would be catch it, bin it, kill it, and then leg it. Um, we also get quite a few questions coming in from the audience. And um, we've got quite a nice one in from someone who perhaps assailed by the credit crunch is looking to capitalise on their internal assets. This person said this. Um, <laughs> perhaps we'll explore that in the Q&A session at the end. Um, I've talked to some pathologists and we've come up with an answer, so um, maybe you can have a think and we can discuss it later. And uh, then we got this one phoned in the other day. Is my friend who has a metal rod in her spine and more attractive to lightning? And then the person adds, I call her lightning rod, by the way. The answer is, actually, yes, you would offer slightly lesser resistance to ground if you have a very large titanium rod going through your spine to stabilise it. And then there was this one. <laughs> Anyone ever tried? How would you find out? I would say do the experiment, but I don't think I want to, actually. But we can do a thought experiment. Okay, because if you take your average person, say we take a 10 stone man, well, a 10 stone man, that's 63 and a half kilo, gravity is accelerating you downwards, 9.8 meters per second per second, 9.8 uh, newton per uh, kilo. So, in other words, the force you've got to overcome to lift off from your fart is at least 622 newtons. So how are we going to calculate this? Well, you can use the, the laws of a very clever man, Isaac Newton. Heard of him? And he had the second and third law. The third law, perhaps in this case, more appropriately named the third law, um, which is that everything, every, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So we can use those laws to solve this. So the first thing we need to know is, well, how much does a fart weigh? So I had a look on Ask Jeeves. So I asked Jeeves, what does a fart weigh? And Ask Jeeves told me it's 0.00037 kilograms. 
Have a look, if you don't believe me. That's the, the weight of an average fart, apparently. Now, Newton's second law is F force equals M mass times A the acceleration. Okay, so the force, that's your 622 newtons that your fart has got to generate. That's what you've got to deli deliver. So you've got to achieve that by accelerating a fart weighing 0.00037 kilograms. So if we rearrange this formula and we divide 622 by 0.00037, you get about 17 million meters a second per second is the acceleration you'd have to give to your fart. Now, if you assume your fart lasts one second, which is pretty good going, isn't it, for anyone who's tried it, um, that would mean that you would have to f effectively be farting at 17 million uh, metres per second. Um, and uh, that's uh, 17,000 kilometres per second, of course. That's 18% of the speed of light. <laughs> Is anyone capable of this feat? Some people would probably say their partners have tried. Um, 36.5 million miles an hour, though. Not bad going. There is a slight downside to this, though, which is that if you were to use this as a stable form of propulsion, you would have to maintain that sort of output for a very long time. This would mean that you would presumably have to have a very large amount of gas stored inside you at considerable pressure. As the gas left your body, it would decompress, of course. And as you know, if you take a deodorant can and you spray this in your armpit, what happens to it? gets cold, doesn't it? Because the gas in the deodorant can is doing work against the atmosphere, losing energy, therefore it loses temperature, gets colder. So if you could accelerate that much bowel gas for any sustained length of time, it's almost certain you'd freeze your ass off. <laughs> Quite literally. One of the other things we do with our radio program is we, we shove it in here. Uh, does anyone know what this is? This is Second Life. And so we thought we would try experimenting with this. So when our program goes live, sitting in my office, is a digital radio tuned to a local radio station that broadcasts our show and it feeds it in to this mansion we've built in Second Life and about 40 or 50 people arrive every week from all over the world actually. There are some professional insomniacs from various countries who turn up and the beauty of this is we watch their conversation because we can see what they're saying to each other and the thing about radio programs is people sometimes feel inhibited about phoning them up but they will sit here and chat with each other quite happily. And this includes people who have certain personality disorders and also neuropsychiatric disorders like autism who feel that they can't interact with people as themselves but they'll perfectly well interact in this format. And this conversation means that we can pollinate our program with all the interesting observations and feedback and comments these people make to us as the show's going up and we feed it back into the program so we actually make the real world a better place for the people who are not in Second Life. Some people say that uh, before you get a Second Life you should get a First Life um, but we've had quite a lot of success with this. The other thing we do with the radio show, which has really made all the difference, is we turn it into this, our podcast. And so we walk away with the digital version of what's been broadcast live on a Sunday night, and we republish it on a Tuesday night, so at 6 o'clock this evening, just gone, uh, our programme from yesterday, sorry, Sunday, will have been published. This week it's all about antimatter. We had the programme, it's, it's called uh, The Matter of Antimatter. And it's all about what you can do with antimatter. Um, but we put these programmes up on the internet, and we also transcribe them. So all the programs are broken up into all of the little bits that make up each show. And so people can listen to each of the individual bits or they can download the entire program and play it off. And this gets an enormous audience. Um, when we first started doing this, a few thousand people a year used to listen to it. And it was one of the world's first science podcasts. Back in about uh, 2001, we started actually making podcasts. We, we didn't have a very big audience, but it was an international one. 
Uh, as soon as iTunes joined the fold, um, we were doing in a day what we used to do in a year. And it actually blew up three web servers and had me evicted by three web hosts for overuse of resources. Um, nowadays, we solve that with some help from a company called UK Fast. Um, we also don't just make one radio program. I've diversified things a bit. So we actually put our program out across the world now in various formats. So REM FM in Europe take our program on a Sunday. The ABC in Australia take a live Friday morning science update that I do. Um, we also have this, which is the Ask the Naked Scientist phone-in, which is good fun. We sit in the studio on someone else's show for an hour, and we do any science question on anything. People just phone in with any science question they want to talk about, and we answer them. So how many organs can I donate, and that kind of thing comes out of shows like that. Um, we also turn our program into a, a five live show, which goes out later on on a Sunday after our main show. And in South Africa, we also have a science phone-in for 30 minutes on a, a radio station called Talk Radio 702, which is extremely popular. About half a million to 600,000 people tune into that now. And Channel Africa, which is the equivalent of the BBC World Service for Africa, take a half-hour show of our version of our show, and they get 15 million people a week listening. Uh, we've also diversified in the pod domain because uh, podcasting is an extremely helpful medium. You can make lots of programs at relatively low cost, and you can make them any length you like, and they cost virtually nothing to broadcast because it's just bandwidth. And so we've gone for specialist subjects now. Naked Astronomy uh, is a monthly astronomy program. That gets about 10 to 20,000 downloads. We've got an archaeology program because one of our team is an archaeologist, and that's incredibly popular because there's virtually nothing for archaeologists out in the podcast domain. We've launched an oceans program. And then Science and the Sporran was an offering for Christmas a couple of years ago. This is a Scotsman, or at least he wears a kilt. It's Dave again, by the way. Uh, and he has a stunt Sporran. So all of the equipment that he needs for his experiments are produced from his Sporran. Vacuum cleaners, toasters, 10-metre-long bits of plumbing, hosepipe, you name it. And it actually got a whole page in the Scottish Post, because, just because of the, the fact that he was wearing a kilt. Um, but that now, that now has become incredibly successful, and it's, it was our first foray into video podcasting. And now we're doing this, which is the Naked Scientist Scrapbook. And I would urge you to look this up on iTunes and have a look at the Naked Scientist Scrapbook. It's great fun. We answer questions like, why does an onion make you cry? Why can birds sit on power lines with impunity? Why does a cake rise? That kind of thing. And we answer them graphically. So we've actually got Sarah, who's making it, is drawing under a camera but we speed the drawing up 10,000 times while she answers the question, and it's uh, humour-laden and very fun. So have a look at the Naked Scientist scrapbook. Our, we reckon that the total number of people around the world who are interacting with our content is about this, 20 million people now. So from something that started off as a Sunday evening hobby for one in my living room has now grown to be this thing which is having an impact on people's lives around the world, and we're pretty proud of that. This is iTunes, if anyone's not acquainted with it, and uh, iTunes like us, and they give us lots of promotion, and so we have managed to make the top slot in the science strand, so there we are up there, ahead of some of the other solid greats. There's our other program of Five Live, also in the top ten, which is good. And this brings us a massive audience. Um, in fact, these are the data which I've been analysing for 2010. Uh, about 160 to 170,000 downloads of the program every week across the world. And in fact, almost this time last year, so on the 29th of January, at 19.30 in the evening, we were sitting in our office taking screenshots of the server logs about every three nanoseconds to get this shot, which showed the downloading of the 10 millionth copy of the Naked Scientist podcast. And now we're up to 16 million. So, uh, in other words, this scales at virtually no cost. We haven't had to spend a lot more money to get to this very, very big audience. 
And it's also a very mixed audience. We get a lot of people who are very young, who are young and enthusiastic about science, but there's nothing on TV or radio that compares that they like quite as much. Now, there is a problem with getting this much um, traffic. A, you've got to handle the bandwidth, but also you get a lot of audience interaction. Lots of people sending questions. We get 3,000 email questions a year. And this guy called Steve wrote to me. He lives in Washington, D.C., and he said he was driving in, listening to The Naked Scientist one morning, as he always does, and he looked up and this massive crack had appeared in his windshield, so he sent me a picture of it. Here it is. Um, Luckily, auto glass on hand to repair that. Um, but the thing is, what do you do with thousands of really good quality questions that you don't have airtime to answer? So we had to come up with a solution. So here's an example of the kind of question you get. This person, Elliot, writes in and says, I'm wondering how it's possible to breathe and live on our planet. Where do all the gases that make up our atmosphere come from? Good question, but if we haven't got a show coming up and we can put it in straight away, we need a way of answering it. So we've put on our website a forum it's called the Naked Scientist Science Forum. And it's a discussion forum with thousands of people all around the world coming here to ask questions of their own. But if they have an area of expertise of their own, they answer questions in their area of expertise. And we've also got an international team of moderators, including some professional insomniacs in this country who moderate it in the middle of the night. And that means that the kind of answers that are provided here are really high quality. So what we do is we've written some computer code. So when people send us emails now, the server interrupts them. It then puts them into the right category on this forum. And it then waits 48 hours for the person's question in this forum to get answered. It normally attracts 8 to 10 answers within about two days. And then it sends them an email. And it says, thank you for your question. Um, we've shortlisted it for possible inclusion in a future show. In the meantime, we put it into our forum for you, and it's received four comments from other forum users. So that's auto-generated. It says how many people have replied. And then it gives them a link to follow, to go to the forum, so they can see what the answer to their question is. Um, and so if you look at that person, Elliot's question, there it is. It's gone into the forum in the environment category, and he's already got a whole bunch of answers. This person's in Sweden and answers the question for him. And by the end of that, there'll be 10 or 12 really good quality answers and debates around this. So very popular with homework for some reason. Get lots of homework questions. Can't think why. You can tell their homework because it's quite obviously a GCSE question that's been ripped off that says, give three reasons why the ionization energy of this atom is as follows. Right? Just the graph that's missing for us to refer to. Um, we think we're in danger of being prosecuted for having created some kind of addictive entity, though, because people are notching up huge amounts of time. Karen W. is in, actually, Arizona, and uh, she has notched up an aggregate 211 days, 23 hours, and 12 minutes of forum time, not just logged in, but as in actually writing stuff. Um, Neil E.P. is a professional insomniac from here in London, and he's notched up over 70 days. Um, so, in other words, this is a very compelling, it's a very attractive, very interesting uh, environment because people love learning, but they also like discourse and interaction with other people. And it's an international community of people, all different backgrounds and all different levels of expertise. So you can both give a little information and take a little. So it's a really nice community, but we also use it to create and analyse good quality data for the Naked Scientist radio show. Because when we go on air and we answer one of those questions on air, we can also print out the forum discussion that's been had and then mention that. We can say, and on our forum, blah de blah also pointed out the following. So it's a really nice way of drawing people out of our podcast and into our website and vice versa. And since we started doing this, the forum traffic has roughly doubled and this forum alone gets 2 million page views to 2.6 million page views every month. 
Um, just to give you an insight into the kind of traffic we do in web pages alone on our website. So in 2007, I'll show you the, the how it grows. We start off with about 5 million hits a month and a total of 100 million hits a year. Um, we grew that over the next year to from 10 million to 20 million hits a month, 172 million hits, and then the end of 2009, uh, 25 million hits a month grew to about 30 of 300 million hits in total. Um, in just web pages, half a terabyte or more of just web pages. That's not podcasts, it's just web pages. In fact, when I had this on the University of Cambridge web servers, I was accounting for about 99.9% .9 of the university's web traffic, and they asked me to please leave because it was compromising the university service. Um, the data for 2010, which we're just analysing, is looking pretty similar. We got written up uh, in The Independent. Um, there was this, this uh, week in radio, ran this piece, and I noticed um, there was this item about us. It's, it's this bit here, I'll just blow it up for you. Um, and I like this, because this, this guy wrote, um, Driving through East Anglia recently, I happened on The Naked Scientist, the radio manifestation of a website set up by Chris Smith. Um, been listening via the BBC since. Mixes pub-level banter with radio four-level interviews, which is an erratic mix, but has the great virtue of making conversations about science a normal and enjoyable activity. And so it should be, wouldn't you agree? And lastly, um, one of the other things I did was I set up the podcast for the journal Nature in 2005. In fact, I did the first 100 episodes of it. And because it was the first example of any peer-reviewed science journal offering a podcast to complement the printed copy... Um, they interviewed me for one of these abstraction things. And this uh, American journalist from Boston rang me up and was asking me these questions in quite a dry way. And he went through, you know, why did you call it the Naked Scientist to start with? And, um, you know, what do you do? And all this kind of thing. And, and I thought the interview was over. And he asked me this question. He said, how long are you going to carry on doing this? And I said, oh, until I die, which at this rate will be in about a year. And he printed it. Bloody nature. Got this thing on there. How long will you keep producing this show until I die, which at this rate will be in about a year's time? We've won seven awards for what we do. Um, most recently, the Royal College gave us their Furness Prize for Communication of Science and Medicine. And we've also won a medal from the Royal Society, their Code Medal in 2008, for excellence in communicating science because of doing things slightly differently, which has been our approach. And we couldn't have done any of it, though, without the people who funded us in the early days and the Wellcome Trust here in London have been uh, absolutely relentless supporter and promoter of what we've done and I'm very grateful to the Wellcome Trust. Also the EPSRC continue to help us. The Isaac Newton Trust are, are based at Cambridge University and UK Fast are the web company that stepped in in 2006 when I got slung off of every single ISP in the country for breaking their web servers and they give us all the web services that we can possibly use and they've been very, very helpful. So thank you. If you need a good web host, call UK Fast. And uh, finally, my plug for this week, my new book is out. Thank you, Little Brown, for publishing it. This is The Naked Scientist. The idea is to make science fun and interesting with the same sort of humour I've displayed for you today. But in here, it's lots of different interesting science news stories that we have covered on our radio programs and elsewhere over the last couple of years. So this is a way to get up to date on science really quick, but to have lots of fun gags to relate, relate down the pub at the same time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that very interesting presentation. We have a lot of time now for uh, questions and answers, and we've heard that uh, that's his stock and trade, so 
Let's see how well he does with questions and answers. So if you'd like to ask a question, I would ask you first of all, um, I remind you that uh, we'll send a, one of the ro roaming, roaming mics uh, so that we can all hear your question and also record it. Um, I should point out that um, I'm also a virologist. I'm a consultant virologist at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge. So if anyone wants to ask about the flu, I'm quite happy to talk about the flu as well. Good. So uh, raise your hand. I'll recognize you. And then we'll make sure that you get a microphone before you begin to ask your question. So over here, we have a question. Thanks, Chris. I am a regular listener to your podcast. And it's very nice to, to see you and to thank your team through you. Were you expecting today? a naked person then? Uh, no, I wasn't really. Actually, there is a naked, there is a naked person on the website. So, yeah. I, I learn a lot through the podcast and I also laugh when I listen to it. And I find so many interesting things I want to share with people who can't speak English. And I wonder if you have ever considered trying to link up with people that can extend your research and everything that you broadcast. Um, okay, so I guess what you're asking is, can we produce foreign language versions of the Naked Scientist? Um, the answer is that, at the moment, in order to get the same sort of quality and to fact-check it, because when we, put, when we put out these things, they're all peer-reviewed, evidence-based, reference-associated pieces of information. Nothing that goes out isn't checked by several people when we publish it to make sure that the educational experience is absolutely optimum. And we couldn't guarantee, in a language that's not our own, that we would deliver the same service. If you're offering, though, to come and help out, maybe we could. But one interesting thing is we do get a lot of people who uh, don't speak English, but they love using our site as an English learning tool because we've got the word-for-word -word transcript, and they listen to the audio whilst following the transcript, and, and then they check that their understanding is correct. And we've had a lot of people who write to us, even people in um, South America, um, from Ecuador. Someone wrote to me the other day and said, my English has come on leaps and bounds. I thought, blimey, if you can understand me, he's doing really quite well, because when I get excited I tend, and have a few coffees, I tend to go a bit fast. And, um, yeah, he's, so he, he's saying does exactly that. So although we may not at this stage have the resources to produce foreign language editions, I think we are helping people who aren't native English speakers to engage with it all the same, because they can always ask Google, translate this page for me as well. Wouldn't go by everything that the translation says, but you can get a reasonable rough idea of what it's about. But thank you very much for, for coming and listening. I'm very touched. Thank you. You had a question over here? Yeah. Hi there. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with your radio show, but uh, thanks for your talk. Um, I, when I read the promo, I focused on uh, that uh, you also explore tomorrow's technologies. Um, I was wondering if you had any comments that you'd like to share about, uh, about that subject. Okay, so what, what have we done in terms of tomorrow's technologies? Well, um, on the 6th of February, so in about two weeks' time, that program will be on the future of computing. And one of the things that we'll be discussing is green computing. Because it may surprise you to know that the airline industry produces less CO2 on aggregate than the computer industry. Just running the internet releases more greenhouse gases internationally than all of the aeroplanes on Earth put together. So people are interested in looking at how we can solve this problem. And one way is to do so-called green computing, where instead of running very hot 
very costly data centers in this country. And to put that into perspective, if you go to a data center, in other words, a server farm where there are racks of servers that are supplying data onto the internet, keeping that cold uses as much energy in air conditioning as it does to actually run the servers. So if you go up on the roof of the building, you'll see heat being thrown away to the sky at the rate of three to five megawatts routinely. So does it have to be like that? Well, what a group of researchers at Cambridge University are doing is looking at ways to farm out processing around the planet. So when you put an instruction onto the internet, rather than it going to my data center, a special piece of software says, well, where isn't busy at the moment? Where's got surplus electricity and surplus server capacity so we're not going to run a bunch of servers that are already hot, even hotter? Where could we send that instruction where it won't put pressure on? Oh, look, half the world's asleep. We'll send it to their data centers where there's, at the moment, low demand. They can do some of the work, and the Internet will just send it back. And so they're looking at ways of doing this dynamic routing in order to maximize the efficiency of the Internet. And we're also going to feature some people from the company Arm. And if you know who Arm are, if you owned a BBC microcomputer in the early days, I was one of the first owners. Any, any other BBC Model B owners in? Anyone else have a BBC computer in the early days, in the 80s? Yeah, there's one. Okay, two. Yeah, they were good, weren't they? Well, that, the, the next generation of those was the RISC-based machines, and the Archimedes was one of those. And those chips, which they designed for those computers, are extremely efficient, so efficient that pretty much 99.9% .9 of all the mobile devices on Earth are now using that technology and ARM license it out to big manufacturers to make their chips. And they're going to come in and talk about how you design microchips to make them much more energy efficient. Because if you look at the energy density of a Pentium processor in your average computer, the energy density in that Pentium processor is equivalent to a small star compared to, in terms of, the, because it's so small now, the amount of energy you've got going through any given tiny bit of that processor is like having a star on your desktop and it's horrendously hot and inefficient. So can we make processes better to save CO2 and make the internet less costly to the environment than the airline industry? So that's going to be the, the new technology we're going to explore in two weeks' time. So join us and uh, add your comments. Does that, does that satisfy your hunger for something reasonably new tech? Thank you. Other questions? Thanks, Chris. Um, if you could set a science curriculum for your audience, what would you prioritise? In what, if you could set a science curriculum for your audience, what kind of knowledge would you prioritise? What's the kind of science that we need to know? Okay. Um, well, I've never spent a penny on promoting what we do, and we've always let the science sell itself. And David Attenborough's programmes are always a massive hit not because they use loads of special effects or they spend loads of money on putting celebrities on it, even though David Attenborough is a celebrity himself nowadays, but they're really popular because they're interesting, and they're interesting because they're interesting. And so we let the science sell itself, and what we try and do is say, well, what's interesting out there now, and where are people likely to trip up on this? Because if you look at what the mainstream media do with stories, they will be pressurised by editors to put their content out in a very condensed form, which is also instant gratification and tends to ignore things which they don't think they can get an instant sell out of, that people won't go, wow, straight away. But there's very often lurking in there some really interesting details. 
So we're not trying to be a replacement for classroom school teachers. We're trying to help teachers. We're trying to help everybody to appreciate science as much as we do. And very often, by taking stories that are already covered in the press, but then looking to see what the other interesting things about them are that are lurking in there, we can, we can add value. And we really do science because it's interesting, and that's all. Any others? One there? Do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, okay. And then we'll go with it. Is that a kind, kind of a follow-up, kind of related question? So I'm Absolutely. interested also... Just turn the screen yeah. so I can see you. <laughs> In a, and I guess not just your communication with the public, but also particularly the communication the other way. So I'm interested in how your colleagues, um, not just the science communication kind of colleagues at the Wellcome Trust and so on, view your work, but also <laughs> your scientist colleagues in the university. Um, and also in particular in the, the influence, I guess, of the, of the public on the, on the formation and the um, expansion of the show and then setting the agenda. I think it speaks volumes if I say that um, no scientist with one or two exceptions for, for personal reasons, has ever turned us down to appear on one of our programs, ever, in 10 years. There's huge enthusiasm amongst the scientific community to take part with us. I think part of that is that the people who are on our program, who make our program, are themselves scientists. So there's already a degree of confidence that anybody who takes part is going to have a fair hearing and is going to have an opportunity to have their science um, showcased in a way that's going to be a fair reflection on their work. That's the first thing. Um, in terms of how this is viewed in Cambridge University, uh, the answer is very positively, because the university have encouraged me and supported me in doing this for many years now. And in fact, it's gone so far as when my training as a registrar in medicine finished last year, uh, they created a consultant post so that I can carry on doing half-time medicine and half-time working in the university doing this and doing some teaching for them, of course. You never such notice things as free lunch. Um, but in other words, to facilitate the continuation of this. And so I think that done well, there's enormous enthusiasm for doing this kind of thing. And not everyone finds that their colleagues, who, when they try and do some public engagement, are as positive. But we've never had a problem. People have only ever been very, very supportive of what we're trying to do. Because I think they can see the value. They see 17 million downloads in the last four years, and they say, there must be something in this. And at the end of the day, it's making the university look good, because they're all badged up, Cambridge University. And this is a clear sign that Cambridge University is taking important things and giving them to everybody, including people who may not ever go near a university otherwise. Thank you. There's a question here. Hi. Um, the other day, I read in the Daily Mail an article which claimed that um, turning on the bathroom light when you go to the toilet causes cancer. Um, doing, doing what? That turning on the bathroom light when you go to the toilet causes cancer. I, I sorry, I it's a bad echo. I couldn't follow what you said. Say it again slower. The article said that turning on the bathroom light when you go to the toilet causes cancer. Um, turning off the bathroom light? Turning, turning on, on the bathroom on light when you, you go, go to the toilet, toilet causes cancer. Um, and so my question is, it seems like often newspaper articles um, misrepresent science, either because they misunderstand it or because they want to get a better story. And I suppose my question is, what can be done? What can be done about that to make newspapers report science better? Yeah, I think part of this is that I've now got a sort of ten-year cross-section of this bit of the media, and I'm sorry to subject you to asking me about the bathroom light three times. I just couldn't hear you. Sorry about that. Um, 
So I've seen sort of 10 years of change in the media. So it's, it's, it's a small window, but it's been an interesting one because in the last five years, we've really seen an erosion of specialist reporters from many places. Many newspapers that used to have a dedicated specialist science reporter have ditched them in favour of a more general person uh, who is expected to be able to cope with quite high-level science reporting in the same way someone who is a specialist been doing it for 30 years would, but normally, uh, their normal fodder would be writing about what Britney Spears has been up to last week. Um, and as a result, there isn't, I don't think, the same degree of rigour and there isn't necessarily the same uh, opportunity for people to spot a pearl lurking in amongst the debris and go, oh, we must cover that because that's really important. And I think that... Um, the problem is now that newspapers have ditched their experts. But that's great for us because what we can do, we could never compete with someone who's trying to disseminate news because we don't have the budget and doing news is costly and it's hard. But what you can do is to do specialist news and do it really well and add value in a new way. And by really unpicking the stories and doing it really clearly and efficiently and in a fun way so that people remember them, I think we can, we can therefore add our own value there. So I think even though newspapers may have been a bit disappointing in recent years, other things are stepping up to the mark now. And the internet, as long as you go to good quality sites or you use podcasts, you can get some wonderful really good quality resources. And I think pe people are beginning to, to choose with their mouse finger now. Newspapers have been in decline for quite a while and, and they're having to look for a new business model. And I think it's because they're seeing quite a lot of pressure from opposing media now. Yes, question here. Um, do you think that you have to make science fun for people to listen? Why don't people just find out about science anyway? Because it's important. I think we're only human. And I get bored like anybody else. And what really fired me up with this thing and made me realise that uh, you do need humour is that I've sat through so many lectures where I've actually fallen asleep. Or I've got to the end of the lecture and there's been a huge round of applause for this guest speaker and I thought, well, I didn't actually understand. After we started talking about that molecule, I A, lost the will to live and B, lost the thread completely and never got back in. And yet they still got a very vigorous round of applause. So did all these people understand and I was the only one? And then I turned to the person next to me and say, do you understand all that? And they go, no, I didn't. No, I never clue what was going on about it. And, um, and I realised that actually if you make it fun, then people will listen harder because probably the reason I lost the thread was because I probably got distracted for a bit. And people love comedy. It's innate to human behaviour. And it's like, you know, if you give people something funny, they'll keep hanging on for the punchline. It's like people say famously, there are two rules of comedy. One, always leave the audience wanting more. It, you know, it, it's our trademark. We, we, we do shit word plays, poor puns, uh, but people laugh partly at us, mainly with us. Um, it wouldn't work for everybody. Um, and humour is not the number one thing the science is, but it certainly is the catalyst that helps us get, get our message out there. Um, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but it certainly helps in, in our setting. And you know, you know yourself better than anybody, and I know this works for, for the way we are. Uh, we'll take a question here in the, in the back and then in the front, if that's okay. Hello there. Hi. Um, just following on from this gentleman, just wanted to ask you if you've got your eyes on any new developments or technologies or inventions that are coming up this year that you're excited about and you're kind of, you know, they're the, you know, they're going to make a big difference in whichever field. Um, 
we tend to be more um, reactive than proactive. We're not actually going out doing investigative journalism. But one benefit of being at the university is that I sit down at lunch and have conversations with people from all different disciplines in the college. And that means that a kind of interaction between a pathologist and an atmospheric chemist that would never normally happen tends to happen. And um, so many of our programs are spawned in that way. So there is a researcher at our university who has got a very large grant to charter aeroplanes to fly an aeroplane from Cranfield up and down the UK every night for a month, flying through all the pollution plumes and sampling them. And we thought it'd be great fun to make a program about this, so we equipped the flight crew with recorders. And we've now got an hour of excellent radio of all of these flights. We've got all the MET reports, and we're going to turn that into a, an item. Um, that will sit beside a new technology, which is a new project that's being pioneered by engineers who are going to try to build the world's longest drinking straw. Now, bear with me. What they're going to try and do is build a 20-kilometer long straw so they can inject sulfate particles right high up into the upper atmosphere to see what effect they have on climate forcing. Because as you know, when you burn fossil fuels, the sulfur in them gets injected high up into the atmosphere. And sulfur, from volcanoes as well, is actually very cooling because it's strongly reflective of solar radiation. So we want to know, well, in quantitative terms, how much impact it has. So how do you get the sulfur in a known quantity to where you want it? We need a straw. And so engineers are trying to design this technology. They think they're going to do it. And uh, we've got the guy who's working on the project. So that's one technology I have my eye on. Because although it will answer an important climate question, the sheer physics and engineering of being able to design a solution like that and the kinds of problems you have to surmount to do it are really interesting and really intriguing. So that's why we're going to talk to him. And the two things will sit together in one program, which will probably come out late in February. Have I got myself out of jail? Is that all right? Um, well, I, I only work, we're only working about a month or a month and a half ahead, so I can't really say what else I'm going to do beyond that because I haven't thought of it yet. Um, any suggestions would be gratefully received. If there's anyone, you know, inevitably at things like this, people, people are party to really interesting things, and they say, oh, you must do this, or you should do this, or you haven't done this for a while, please tell me. We, you know, we thrive on people telling us what we need to talk about or what's interesting because we, we have to otherwise try and second-guess what people are interested in. Much better if people tell us. Question here in the front. <coughs> and then. Hello, perhaps I'm being greedy, but I would like to know how many organs I can <laughs> donate and still stay alive. Or maybe you're poor and you just want to uh, capitalise. Um, well, how many do people think? Hands up if you think three. Okay, we've got to vote for three. More than five? More than ten? Okay. Um, we think. It's about 11. Okay, so I'll run through them. Uh, take note, ready? Okay. You can donate one kidney, because you have two of those. You can donate one lung, because you have two of those. You can donate a segment of bowel, because you've got about 12 meters of that, so you won't miss a bit. You can donate a bit of liver, because liver has an incredible regenerative capacity. If you take a chunk of your liver, you can regrow uh, almost a whole organ from it. You can donate a lobe of your pancreas, because the pancreas, you don't need all of it in order to provide the exocrine digestive function and the endocrine uh, glycemic control component. Um, you can also donate, if you're feeling incredibly altruistic, your corneas to give the sight to someone else who may be blind for some reason. You can give a pump patch of skin. 
You can also donate, um, what was the one I was going to say, uh, bone marrow, because bone marrow is uh, effectively an organ. So you take some bone marrow stem cells, you can repopulate an entire hematopoietic system in a recipient from bone marrow, very successfully done. Um, and then on to the more specialist stuff. Um, you can donate an ovary, and this has been done between two pairs of identical twins. Uh, there were two twins in America where one of them had prim primary ovarian failure for some reason and couldn't get pregnant. Her sister, who had completed her family, donated an ovary, which was implanted into the sister, and she was able to uh, have children. There wouldn't be any genetic problem because she's genetically identical to her sister, so the gamete she's going to produce, well, pretty much, they're going to be the same sort of cards that are being shuffled, aren't they? Um, and then there's a testis. Well, you could, I suppose, donate a testis. You could try and plumb it in, again, in the same way as an ovary works, probably would work, and a uterus. You could, you could do a uterus transplant, and that's been tried as well. If you add that lot up, you get to about 11. You can't donate a testis and a uterus from the same person. <laughs> Although maybe you could, I don't know. <laughs> There's a question over here in the corner. Thank you very much. Uh, I missed the first 10 minutes, so I don't know if you, um, if you have given the answer to my question. So my question is, what kind of questions do you usually get from uh, the audience, apart from questions about scientific facts? So do you get any questions about um, ethical implications and ethical dimensions about science and technology? And also how scientists react to those sort of questions. Like, do they need that? Um, they need to clarify because there might be a gap in their knowledge, or do they really engage and you know might um, think that uh, the audience or someone is asking a question that they have never thought before? Or so, how does the interaction really take place? So, with, with sure. regards to this. So to, to sort of summarise the question you're asking, do we venture into fairly contentious areas where there may be an ethical or a moral component to a, an answer or an area of science? Um, and how do the audience then react to that or further interact with that? Um, and, and, the, and the scientists on the show, yeah. And the answer is that this does occasionally crop up because with things like animal research or stem cell research, not everyone shares the view that this is a good thing and some people have their own perspectives. Um, we offer so many channels of communication because you can tweet at naked scientists, you can text in, you can phone in, you can email, you can write on the forum. Um, there's so many different ways of getting in touch. We've got a Facebook page which is littered with all kinds of comments. If we're going on the radio, you just write on Facebook, we're on air in 15 minutes, put your question in here, listen to the web feed here, and you'll get your question answered, and you'll get 10 really good quality science questions in, in minutes. Um, so the answer is that there are so many channels of communication that people will very quickly venture their thoughts on a particular area, and we can then put that to the scientists to then get their perspective whilst at the same time also emphasising that this is just one person's view and that the world is a big place with nearly 7 billion people in it and they all have their own opinions. Is that okay? The socio-demographic um, socio profile of your audience. 
So do you know... Oh, very good question. The answer is yes. We know a lot about our audience. I didn't show it to you because it's obviously quite uh, labour-intensive to go through all that stuff. But um, for the last few years, we've run audience analysis in detail, as in big surveys, with more than 1,000 responses each time. So we think the data is really solid. And it's really interesting because when you make science programs, people will tell you, editors will tell you, publishers will tell you that you're going for a certain audience and you'll get a certain type of person and you've got to preach to them because other people won't turn up. And when we got the data back for the Naked Scientists, we thought we'd made a mistake. We thought something was wrong because the demographic went 50% of the audience have got no qualifications in anything and 30% of the audience actually left school at 16. That was the last time they did any science. But 50% of the audience are qualified at degree level or higher, with 25% of them having a master's, and one person in 10 has got a PhD in a science-related subject. And I actually got this advertising company phoned me up from the States and said, uh, we've been running our own web surveys on educational resources on the internet to look for potential advertising outlets, and, um, well, your site keeps coming up as off our scale for education. It said, like, 600% standard educational score, because, you know, one person in 10 of your audience must have a PhD, and sure enough, when we got our own data in it, it agreed. Um, and so we have this very, very savvy, high-end audience listening alongside a very unspecialist audience. This shouldn't happen, but it does, and we think it happens because science is A, quite compartmentalised and specialised. So I'm an expert in virology, but I don't know an enormous amount, let's say, about certain aspects of quantum mechanics. Um, therefore, I will find that nonetheless interesting to listen to, and I would like someone to explain it to me. Um, but someone who's an, a non-expert in either subject will still listen as long as it's done with approachable language in a fun way that people can engage with and they can follow. If you leave people behind, they'll just switch off. If you dumb it down too much, the high-end people leave. So what we try and do is subscribe to the, the, the adage that you don't have to understand every word on a page to enjoy a story, but as long as you can follow the story, you can enjoy it. And that's what we aim to do. We don't dumb anything down. We always, always say to people, please leave all the details in. It's a big mistake to dumb something down because when people try to make a program simple, they think the answer is actually to remove facts. Actually, it makes it much harder to understand if you take all the facts out. People can follow the reasoning if you just present the argument logically and don't rely on people having to understand loads of jargon. So simplify the language, but keep all the facts in. People love it. That would be my message. Sally? Just one more. On, following up on the question about the controversial technologies, things like stem cell research that you mentioned there, are things like uh, various biotechnologies, GM food, and so on and so forth. And my question is, what role do you think uh, the public or non-scientists should have in policy decisions which are made about how those technologies develop or are used and produced and implemented? So you're saying what role should non-scientists have or should scientists have? Non-scientists. Well, if I take research, how research is done as an example, um, I can't do any research. We couldn't do the audience surveys I told you about until we got ethical approval for them because we wanted to gather data from under 16-year-olds and we know that we've got quite a few kids aged 11 listening to our program. But in order to get data from them, it has to go to an ethics committee. Now, the ethics committee know bugger all about what we do but uh, they're nonetheless they're taking an informed viewpoint as to whether or not what we're doing sounds a reasonable approach and whether or not we are nefarious individuals out to uh, do naughty things or whether we're actually doing this in a sensible way without har doing harm to people. So I think that having the perspective of people to, to take a non-specialist, well, let's look at this from a non-specialist perspective, I think is very important. But at the same time, we mustn't let 
people who feel very strongly about things for personal reasons cloud what needs to happen scientifically either. So there's a fine line, and I'm not an expert in it, so I rely on ethics committees and other people to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. I work with Energy International Development, and as a result, I'm a little bit obsessed with energy. Um, big um, problems and solutions in the world, to me, are connected with energy, one way or the other. Uh, why don't you have uh, a specific uh, one of these uh, fields you had? Nothing on energy. Is that because people are not interested? or? Um, I want to start naked climate change, um, <laughs> well, um, naked greenhouse gases, um, but that kind of program needs to be bomb-proof because when you publish anything or when we publish any programs on the web, uh, what happens is that if you do a program on anything to do with the environment where climate change is a factor, it will generate more vitriol than anything else all year and it will do it in one day flat. Um, so people feel very strongly about this subject. So anything we want to do, we have to make sure it's absolutely rock solid and is not going to upset people so that we can make sure we've preempted those arguments. Now to do that takes enormous resources and we'd need a big grant. Um, and I have been talking, because Cambridge University have got a climate change institute and they are very eager to try and do this to try to help people to understand more about what we think the problems and priorities should be and so we are talking to them but until we know we can do it and do it really well we're not going to do it at all but why taking the climate change perspective um, to me energy problems related to energy are so much I'm, more. I'm struggling to hit sorry, uh, I'm struggling. sorry. Why, why taking the climate change perspective when <clears throat> to me energy is so much more uh, whether there was climate change in the first place or not we would still have the problem of energy uh, that is behind uh, anything food water uh, whatever you mentioned it and energy is behind it so it would be easier maybe to stay out of the climate change of course climate change is a part of it but it doesn't need well to be the central well, we do cover things on energy. Um, it's a technology, it's an important thing because of the amount of energy that the, uh, the world needs, and there are new technologies coming along to provide cleaner energy so we don't poison ourselves. And whenever those things come along, we talk about them. Um, I don't think we would want a whole program just about energy because I don't know if we'd have enough content to populate a whole monthly strand on that. Um, but if we, if we wire it into another bigger problem, such as the environment and climate change, then we would be able to, to do it, which is why I'm suggesting attacking it from that angle. But that's just my opinion. If you think, if you think that it would have legs, maybe write to me, and we'll see if we can um, work out how you could make a, a single standalone strand just about energy provision. No one's ever suggested it. It sounds like a good idea. I'd have to look at whether we thought we could sustain it. Question here in the back. Hello. Uh, do you 
Are you planning to venture into digital media because I, I think you are only working in radio currently. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, hear you. Are you planning to venture into digital media, to like television, any programs on television? It's like, a really bad echo. I'm really struggling to hear you. I'm so sorry. sorry. Uh, are you planning to venture into digital media? like? Uh, into which media? Uh, television. Um, programs on television. Television? Uh, yeah. Like well, we have made a couple of TV series, but I, I mean, the thing about TV is this, it's really expensive. Um, if you make a radio program, you might spend about £2,000, and that will return a really good, solid hour of radio. The same on TV will cost you about £100,000. So it's 10 to 20-fold more expensive, because you need 20 times as many people to produce something for every piece of talent or person you see on screen, compared with radio, where the person who's the talent can, meet, can, can also be the producer. So it's very, very expensive. And in order to do it well, so it looks good, and people will have faith in it, because if it looks shoddy, people won't trust it. And it's much easier to make radio sound solid, well-produced, and trustworthy than it is to make a, a TV program have the same attributes. So we tend to let other people just feature us on their programs. So we've done episodes of um, Equinox on pandemic flu, and, and I go on breakfast telly and talk about uh, various things uh, from time to time. But in terms of whether we see this as a, a major thing for ourselves, at the moment it's too costly, and I think we can do more with radio for the money than we could do in telly. But we are venturing into the visual domain because we're making radio, we're making uh, short podcasts, which are video podcasts, um, which do very well. The Scrapbook and the Science Sporing, for example, were very, very popular because people love looking at stuff. And a new project we've got coming out later this year, I, I'm sure they won't mind me talking about it now, is um, with one of the big publishers of school textbooks, we're going to produce a textbook of the future. So from later this summer, hundreds of thousands of children will get the naked scientists uh, in their classrooms, and it's uh, taking hard-to-understand and hard-to-grasp topics from the textbooks and drawing out the facts. So we are, are doing art and animated explanations. So when you actually see a radioactive atom decay, lots of kids, if you ask them, when this nucleus decays, what happens to it? They go, well, it disappears. And you say, no, it doesn't. It actually splits into two smaller things, and there's a mass disparity, and that's the radioactive particle or energy that's been emitted. And then you show them that visually, and then they've got something to attach it to. And the reason we're doing this is because pretty much all kids now are walking around with some kind of personal portable player or, or display that actually has got better resolution than my computer monitor at home. And so we want something that, instead of kids carting around textbooks that make them look like a geek on the bus, they can get their iPhone out, and everyone thinks that they are listening to music or whatever, but actually they're doing a bit of revision. And um, that's what we're going to do. Your programs cover such a wide range of subjects that I'm wondering how you went about deciding what to publish on that book and how your team decides what's the process for you to decide what to put out to the public. Um, I'm just a professional geek, really. Um, I'm, I'm interested in everything, and so every week, the way our news feed works, every week I, I look at pretty much everything that's being published in the science domain that's going to come out that week. I'll go home on a Wednesday night, so tomorrow, with pretty much every press release and every paper that's going to come out in the hard-hitting journals. I don't mean in um, history of ideas and other scientific principles, you know, which is an impact factor of 
log minus 10 or something. Um, as in decent quality journals, I'll go home with all the papers and I'll read them through. And that gives me a, a sort of barometer of interest in terms of where, where science is going in any particular direction, what there's a lot coming out about, therefore what people are going to get a lot of information about and what we need to make sure we're covering, but also what's hot and what I think will, will make uh, good radio, because not everything goes well on the radio and we have to pick. And that gives, that gives me a strong grasp of where science is going, which helps to target the whole programme, but it also means that the individual news is well chosen as well. Question here. Uh, thank you. Do you think scientific understanding is expanding at the same rate in, over, or it will do over the next hundred years as it did over the last hundred years? Gosh, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer. Um, everyone's better connected, everyone's better educated in terms of the amount they know and their use of science because you can't walk down the street now without using science. I suppose 100 years ago, you probably could just about get away without using much science uh, in your daily life. And so we're so deluged in it that people innately learn to use science. My daughter, who was well, she's just four, um, knows how to use YouTube. And when we were asking her, because um, she'd been playing on, on some interactive thing about the, I don't know, she was learning something about the Christmas story. And um, no, Cinderella. We went to the pantomime, and it was Cinderella. And we're saying, do you know the story of Cinderella? She says, yes, I was on the internet the other day. And uh, there was this sort of Cinderella thing. And you click on this, and the pumpkin turns into a coach. And you click on the mouse, and it becomes a horse. And I think, Jesus, my four-year-old knows, knows about YouTube. She can operate YouTube, and she knows about clicking on things with mice, and she's four. You know, I would have had to wait another ten years for that to come along when I was her age. So I think people are being immersed in science, and so the exposure and interaction with it is, is a bit different. But whether they actually will know more about it and be able to make informed judgments, that's going to be down to the politicians to make sure that teachers are empowered to, to help people to, to learn properly and make sure science stays up on the agenda. Thank you. Just a, a quick um, question about your opinion on learning. Um, what do you, how do you rate learning in terms of listening to the radio, watching the television or films and reading? Which do you think enables you to retain what you've seen and learned? Not just learning in, in the short term, but retaining it. Thank you. There was a paper published in the journal Science last week about the best way to learn something. And uh, one of the techniques that's being pushed a lot at the moment is where you draw these diagrams where you put a fact and then you connect it with a piece of, or a sort of line to another fact and you, you're trying to see this network of facts on a piece of paper. And they compare that approach with actually brute force, you do some work, you try and learn it and then you try and regurgitate it. Which is what I've always done through my life. I've learned by rote recall of information. And what they found is that the rote recall of information that's been largely abandoned in the classroom because it's old-fashioned is, in fact, the best way to learn. Um, so the answer is that it, it, it's very hard to know how much people take away from uh, a program because unless you make them sit an exam afterwards, you're never going to know exactly. And this is one of the things that people who do a lot of public understanding of science will always say is a big problem with assessing the impact of a program. You can ask the audience, what did you think of that? And people say, oh, that was really interesting. You can do things where, like, you could take a session like this and you ask them some questions at the beginning about something, then you ask them the same questions at the end and see if uh, 
A, the number of responses is the same, so in other words, people aren't asleep, and B, if actually the rate of positives has gone up, so they've learned something. Um, I like radio for two reasons. One, I've already mentioned, it's, it's cheap and very effective. And one of the reasons it's so effective is because you paint in your own mind the pictures you want to see with the help of the words that the person speaking to you uses. On telly, you've got to preempt the kind of picture that the person wants to see in their mind eye to make that program compelling and also a good vehicle to communicate the fact. And if you get it wrong, you distract people's attention so badly that actually they learn the wrong thing or they're totally obsessed with what was wrong and not learning what was right. Good teleprograms do it really well. Get it wrong and you get a bad program. So on the radio, it's, I think, harder to get it wrong. And so I would put my money on radio. But there are constraints, which is that certain things are quite hard to convey without the help of showing someone something. A picture paints a thousand words, which is why we introduced doing experiments, because then people are physically seeing the experiment happening in front of their eyes whilst listening to the other messages. And that interactivity adds a whole new dimension. So that's how we got around that problem. Well, obviously, hopefully everyone in this room can read. Um, and most of us read our notes to learn stuff and we read papers to educate ourselves. But actually, it looks like the way in which you really force the information in is to check that you can regurgitate it. And if you have a very low threshold for, I'll start that again if I get that wrong, then you can learn things really very well. But if you just read things, especially as you get older, your brain has a very good technique for filling in gaps. And you scan through something and think, yeah, I know all that, because um, your brain is filling in all the gaps for you. And then when the page is taken away, you think, actually, I don't know that very well, do I? And uh, maybe I should read it again. So you have to have a very good error-checking mechanism in your own head. And the best way of doing that is to turn the page over and say, well, let, how many facts can I remember about what I just read? But not many people do that, not surprisingly. Second question over here. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, your talk. It's, it's two small questions. One is uh, your thoughts on how people use information they get in your programs. Like, okay, they know that um, air behaves like liquid, but you know, in what way does that help them you know, see the world in a more enlightened way? Do they make connections with it? Um, and the other one is, uh, you know, any advice you have for science journalists? Because it seems that more and more the best programs are actually, you know, programs you know, made by scientists themselves, like, you know, Brian Cox and you and yesterday's Horizon was presented by the President of the Royal Society, who's a Nobel Prize winner, and uh, so, you know, journalist school, journalism schools are still, you know, kind of teaching science journalism, but it seems that perhaps they need to, uh, you know, see things in a different way. There's quite a lot to think about there. Um, well, to look at the last point, um, it's a very hard one to answer because science journalists are coming under enormous pressure from people like me who learned one art and have applied it to another. And obviously I'm always going to win when it comes down to brute force knowledge about something. But the journalists are always going to win when it comes to actually knowing the best way to write a story in a compelling way because you get good, hopefully, after spending 20 years of your life writing good pieces of text and, and copy. 
Um, so I think that there's no one single answer. Some people are just naturally gifted, I think, and then some science journalists will have a very strong command of science and they will be, I think, at a strong advantage. At the moment, the current sort of media thing is that they like people who are scientists themselves because that, that's the latest thing that's on vogue. I suspect it will, will change. David Attenborough did natural sciences, but he, he stopped at degree level. He didn't, didn't do a PhD or anything. It hasn't stopped him making some fantastic programs. He's a wonderful, wonderful science communicator. Yeah. Well, actually, that's where we start. We don't end at that point. We start at that point, and we ask, what do we want to make people think? What to, what's the message we want people to take away from a program? What do we want them to, to hopefully change about their thought processes, having experienced this? And then we work backwards. So the oven in your ears experiment was, we want to communicate, why do foghorns use low frequencies? And how do they? Why have why have bass speakers got enormous great cones on them, whereas the tweeter is this little tiny thing at the top? Because the bass speaker, to get the amount of air moving, to get the waves into the air, has got to be very big. Um, okay, how do we show that? Right, let's do an oven shelf experiment, and then we can also talk about fluids and so on. So it, it's sort of we start with what do we want people to take away from this, so that when they when they actually are interacting with the world, suddenly things make a bit more sense. And teachers especially find this very helpful because a lot of lessons are bogged down in this sort of dogmatic sort of what they're not allowed to do now because it's too dangerous, whereas we've published a book of these um, experiments that does very well because it's all safe and risk assessed and there's nothing you can, you can kill yourself with, but it does convey really important principles about physical science. Okay. Uh, Two very general questions. The first one is uh, whether you have any particular thoughts on the difference between science and science fiction. Um, enthusiasts of uh, science fiction might say that the only difference is time and technology. Um, the second thought would be just on technology more generally, um, whether you have any thoughts on the limits of technology. Uh, so for example, uh, in the field of virology, which I know very little, I have bought a company which uh, makes nanobots which kill viruses, um, which raises the question in my mind, do we need virologists in the future? I hope so, because otherwise my mortgage is going to go unpaid. Um, well, let, let's look at this question of um, the, the, the blurring between science fiction and science. Well, if you ask Robert Boyle that question, which, which actually he did make a whole bunch of predictions. Um, I think the vast majority, all but two of his 20 or so predictions, came true. Things that sounded so fantastical to the people around him at the time, they said, this has got to be... They would be saying that should be in Star Trek, if Star Trek existed when Robert Boyle was knocking around. And they all came true. And I can remember watching Star Trek when I was little, and these people were whipping out these communicator things and saying, Kirk to Enterprise. And you'd think, God, that's just amazing. And these doors that go, you know, that's incredible. Then I went to Sainsbury's, and they had them. Not the communicator things, but the doors. And, um, and now everyone's got a mobile phone. Who would have thought? And I remember watching Carol Vorderman on the computer show. It would have been about 25 years ago. And she had this credit card. And she went, and pretty soon you'll be able to go into any shop. And they'll just put it in the machine. And it will debit the money directly from your bank account. We thought, God, that's amazing. How is anyone ever going to do that? 
God, you know, if, if you can't get mobile connectivity on your 3G, you know, you, you're thinking it's a bad day today, isn't it? Um, so I think the, the thing is it's just down to human imagination. And if there's a need, generally someone will invest in it until it comes true, if it's tangible. And I think probably the, the things we'll do in the future are, are pretty amazing. If I turned around and, um, and told someone 50 years ago that I could tell you exactly at a molecular level, within two hours, what viruses you've got up your nose, they'd look at me like I was mad. But that's exactly what we do in our lab. And you can even quantify how much virus is coming out of someone. We take a blood sample, you extract the nucleic acid from it, and the nucleic acid is amplified by PCR. Everyone's heard of that. Carrie Mullis got the Nobel Prize for it. But the clever thing with real-time PCR now is that as you make copies of the pieces of genetic material, there are little probe sequences that recognize them. And when they recognize them, they light up and make a color. And the amount of colour is directly proportional to how much DNA must be there. And so you can say, well, I know that you have got 100,000 particles of this virus in every milliliter of your blood right now. And that's really useful for monitoring someone's response to treatment for HIV, for example. There was a paper in Science Translational Medicine that came out last week where researchers have said, OK, we know all about antibodies, we know how they work, but can we do the same thing with RNA, so the single-stranded genetic material? Because RNA, if you choose your base pairs carefully, you can make it wind up into all kinds of exciting shapes. They're now making things called aptamers, which are RNA molecules that bend into these very interesting configurations that will lock onto and neutralise HIV. And the beautiful thing is that they've been able to couple these neutralizing RNAs to another piece of RNA, which when the neutralizing bit of RNA goes onto a cell, which is infected with HIV, it then gets pulled inside the cell, and the other bit of RNA is the mirror image of some key RNA in the virus, which it then cancels out and deactivates the virus in that, in that virally infected cell, but it will be harmless in an uninfected cell. It won't even get in. Um, if you told people you were doing that kind of thing X number of years ago, they'd say that's just you know, science fiction. How can you possibly make a magic bullet that will go into individual cells and interrogate them genetically and see whether they've got a certain virus in them and only kill them if they have? People say, oh, you could never do that. People are doing it. I'm a big fan of science, uh, science fiction. You can probably tell. I think we have time for one more question, if someone would like to ask it. The question is, can we go home now, boss? Yeah. Well, the answer to that question is <laughs> yes. So first of all, I'd like to thank you all, uh, the audience, very much for having turned out to this event and participated so actively. I'd like to thank the, the stewards as well for um, having ensured that we had such an orderly event. Most of all, um, and I'd also like to thank Sally Stairs here for having uh, organized this, put this together. Most of all, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Chris Smith for having made such an interesting presentation and uh, answered all of our questions so well. Thank you very much.